The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 84. To the chief musician on an instrument of Gat, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Does anybody remember what Korah means? It was from the book of uh, Numbers where he got sucked in with his whole family. And does it? Music? No. I'll give you a hint, okay? You can turn around and you can look in that direction over there or look in that direction over there or you can look right here. Anybody? Baldy! Yes, okay. All right, here we go. Um, let's see here. We're going to start again. Now that you know what Korah means, it's Korach in Hebrew, but we'll go here. Um, psalm 84, to the chief musician on an instrument of Gath, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you, Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on the pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Bacha. They make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. What a wonderful psalm. We are in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 29. This is entitled, The Blessings and the Curses, and it's part two. And this sermon, before I begin, is very similar in content to last week's sermon, and you're going to see that. So you're going to hear me repeat some things simply because they need to be repeated, and it'll help drum it into your head anyway. And then starting next week, you will start to see many, many more Christological patterns. Uh, this is very Christological, but because of the structure of Deuteronomy, the first two sermons are less so from my viewpoint or from my uh, presentation. But it's very similar to the last sermon in its content. Okay, so starting in verse 15 through 29. But it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke 
in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning, with the sword, with scorching, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with the scab, and with the itch, from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart, and you shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and plundered continually, and no one shall save you. Tell me, that's not some heartbreaking words. Last week, we saw the promised blessings that Moses said would come upon the people if they simply paid heed to his words and obeyed the Lord. He gave the sure and great promises that they would be exalted, prosperous, and filled. And in their history, this did come upon them at times. But the main thing to consider is that even when they strayed, they still remained. He brought judgments upon them, but he never allowed them to be utterly swept away. This demonstrates the amazing patience, long-suffering, and indeed, the mercy of the Lord. But there's more to it than that. It also displays the covenant-keeping nature of the Lord. We know this is true because the Lord got so tired of man's rebellion in Genesis that he destroyed all but eight of the entire race of humans. Through them, he started anew, and through a continued select line of people, he slowly revealed his plans and his purposes for man. Eventually, he established his covenant with Israel, and he set forth the blessings and the curses noted in our ongoing evaluation of chapter 28. Our text verse comes from Ezekiel 14. Yet behold, there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you, and you will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, all that I have brought upon it. And they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings, and you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done in it, says the Lord God. We're only beginning a long series of curses in the words we will look at today. But one thing is for sure, Israel failed to do what Moses exhorted them to do. And the curses came following hard after them. And yet, Ezekiel, a priest in exile, notes that the Lord kept a remnant who would be brought out. A remnant signifies continuance. Paul writes of the remnant of Israel that exists in the church age in Romans chapter 11. And he also notes that a remnant will be saved in Romans chapter 9. The implication is that despite their continued failings and despite their continued rejection of Christ, Israel continues. Think it through. If a remnant of Israel will be saved, that means that there will be a much larger Israel for them to be saved from. 
In other words, Israel continues. Whether in obedience or disobedience, to this day, a remnant implies a larger whole. This is what we have in the world today, a people preserved by God, even though they are not right with their God, so that he can keep his covenant promises to them. This is the lesson of the Bible. God is faithful even when we are not. Great truths such as this are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've only got two thoughts for you today. The first is, cursed shall you be. It's verses 15 through 19. Verse 15, but it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God. After all the words of blessing in the first 14 verses, these words now carry their own highly ominous tone, even before the rest of the verses uttered. Notice the immediate contrast to what it says in verse 1. Verse 1, and it shall be if hearing you hear in voice Jehovah your God. Verse 15 says, and it shall be if not you hear in voice Jehovah your God. In verse 1, there was an emphasis, if hearing you hear. Now it only says, if not, you hear. One can sense that there is a disregard of the emphasis, and there is instead not even a lackadaisical hearing of what the Lord says. If they so fail, verse 15 continues, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. The words are identical to the corresponding clause, but with one addition. Verse 1, to observe carefully all his commandments. Verse 15, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes. Moses adds in ve chukotav, or and his statutes. This is an enactment or something prescribed. One might say an ordinance. For example, the Passover is called such in Exodus chapter 12. All commands are to be obeyed and all ordinances are to be adhered to. If Israel fails in this, then it shall be, verse 15 continues, that all these curses. The word translated as curse here, kelala, is the same as that used in the previous chapter when the blessings and the curses were to be proclaimed upon Mount Ebal. It signifies vilification. However, this is not referring to the curses mentioned there in chapter 27. Rather, it speaks of what is to be stated in the coming verses. Moses says that it is these that, verse 15 continues, will come upon you and overtake you. The words are identical to the corresponding words of verse 2, with two exceptions. The word blessings is substituted with the word curses, and the word translated as and overtake you is spelled with an additional letter, a vav, in this verse now. Vav is the sixth letter. It is the number of man, especially fallen man. In picture, a vav is a tent peg. The meaning of vav is add, secure, or hook. One can only speculate here, but I'm going to speculate. With the total number of curses set forth in contrast to the number of blessings, it appears that what will overtake Israel will be added to greatly. It is probably not a coincidence that the judgment for Israel's and our sins is especially highlighted in the darkness that covered the earth beginning with the sixth hour when Jesus was on the cross. In Matthew 27:45, it says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. The innocent man took the judgment of the curses which fell upon fallen man. This additional vav may be an anticipatory hint of what was coming in the ministry of Jesus Christ.
As far as the sins overtaking Israel, exactly that is what is spoken of towards the end of the Old Testament, as testified to by the prophet Zechariah. He says, But do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed my me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake that word, overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Remember what we just read in the verse here, 15, will come upon you and overtake you. And Zechariah confirms that that is exactly what happened. It is not as if Moses didn't warn the people. They just failed to pay heed. For now, Moses begins with the curses. Verse 16, cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country. The words of verses 16 through 19 are the antithesis of what was stated in verses 3 through 6. It is a six-fold repetition of the word cursed. Like the blessings, the number of curses is more than six. These are a short summary that will be expanded upon afterwards as we go through the chapter of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. Here, Moses uses the word arar. It is a verb that signifies to bitterly curse. Using this word, Moses says they will be cursed in both the city and the country, literally the field. As such, this covers domestic employment, that of industry inside the walls of the city, and that which is agricultural or outside of them. They are warned that all areas where Israel puts its hand to work, the work of their hands will be cursed. The words here are identical letter to letter to verse 3, except blessed is changed to cursed. Next, verse 17, cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Moses now swaps the blessings of verses 4 and 5. Verse 5 corresponds to this verse now. If you remember from the previous sermon, probably what is meant by Moses is that one, the basket that carries the first of the produce is emblematic of all of the harvest. As the firsts are to be cursed, so will be the entire harvest. It will fail miserably. And two, the bowl that is used for making bread, the staff of life, will fail to be filled, implying famine. In other words, there will always be people hungry and malnourished by the lack of food as only empty containers sit before them. Other than the substituted words, blessed and cursed, the verses are identical letter for letter. Next, verse 18, cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. In this verse, it is letter for letter identical to verse 4, but with two exceptions. The word blessed is substituted with cursed, and Moses now leaves off, and the increase of your herds. It says there in verse 4, blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, and the increase, literally the fruit of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. But here it says, cursed shall be the fruit of your body, and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. As such, these are five curses detailing one category, that of reproduction. However, in the Hebrew, the first three are termed fruit, while the fourth is termed increase, and the fifth is termed offspring. The idea is that nothing will bear fruit or increase so that even the few people who may be left to occupy the land will face lack. The land will become wholly unproductive, 
And with that stated, Moses next says, verse 19, cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. Again, the words are identical, letter for letter to verse six, only with the exception of replacing blessed with cursed. As in verse six, the Hebrew reads in your coming in and in your going out. The meaning is that in one's coming in, there will be no strength. There will be the desire to lay down and curl up from the frustrations of life. There will be no joy, no health for the family, no contentment, no peace, and so on. And in one's going out, there won't be enough strength to put out one's hand to the plow, even if there is an animal to pull it. There will be only tiredness, deprivation, and want as the eyes look to desolate fields with nothing springing forth. With cursing I shall curse you, and you shall be cursed by me. When you fail to observe and to do, you shall be cursed by me abundantly. You follow a path that doesn't lead to me. Instead, you constantly turn either left or right. You fail to follow my ways diligently and to keep me in the center of your sight. O Israel, the blessing is waiting for you. If you would just heed the word that I have spoken, if only you would follow the path that leads to life anew, and I would heal the hearts, desolate and broken. Our second thought today, with madness and blindness and confusion. It's verses 20 through 29. Verse 20, the Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke. The translation here is sloppy. Definite articles precede the nouns, and there is a striking alliteration used by Moses. It says in Hebrew, Yeshalach Yehovah Becha et ha me'era et ha mehuma ve'et ha migaret will send Jehovah in you the curse, the confusion, and the criticism. I translated it that way to maintain the alliteration, which provides a heightened sense of the disaster set to come upon the people. The use of the articles also provides its own marked emphasis. The individual words Moses chooses are me'era, it is the noun form of the word arar that has been used repeatedly in the past few verses. It will be seen just five times. The next time is in Proverbs 3.33, and which perfectly describes what will come upon Israel. There it says, the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. The last two times it will be seen are in Malachi 2.2 and 3.9, and which also beautifully fit with the theme which Moses puts forth from his lips at this time. The second word is mehumah. This is its second use. It comes from the word hum, an onomatopoetic word signifying to murmur or to roar. The first was in Deuteronomy 7 verse 23, where it speaks of just the opposite. Instead of this being inflicted on Israel, when they are disobedient, it will come upon their enemies. It said there in Deuteronomy 7, but the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. The next word is migaret. This is its only use in the Bible. It comes from the verb ga'ar, meaning to rebuke. Thus, I translated it as the criticism. In the use of these three words, Moses is bringing to the highest sense the commotion of life, mind and attitude that will come upon Israel, and he notes that it will be, verse 20 continues, in all that you set your hand to do. The words literally state, in all outstretching your hand, which you do. One can imagine stretching out the hand for grain and bringing back a viper, stretching out the hand for something cold and burning it instead, and stretching out the hand for a bite to eat 
and having it come back filled with thorns. No matter what is done, only the curse, the confusion, and the criticism responds. Verse 20 continues, until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly. The words are exactingly translated here. Moses repeats the word until for emphasis, and then he adds in quickly to acknowledge that the terror will be sudden and it will be abrupt. And all of this will be, as Moses astonishingly says, verse 20 going on, because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. From face evil, your doings, which you have forsaken me. Moses places his words into the position of the Lord. You have forsaken me. To forsake Moses is to forsake the Lord. And in that, there will only be a curse left behind. The thought is repeated in the Old Testament where the word of Moses is directly equated to the word of the Lord such as in two kings. There it says, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. The idea of forsaking Moses is found in the New Testament when Paul went to Jerusalem to meet with James and the elders. This is found in Acts chapter 21. It says there, And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. The word there in act means apostasy from Moses. It is quite clear that there was a misunderstanding by these men of the significance of what Christ had done. It was evident even from chapter 10, when Peter went into the house of Cornelius, that things had changed. But the leadership was still unable to fully grasp that in coming to Christ, one doesn't forsake Moses, meaning the law of Moses, but instead finds the fulfillment and end of Moses. It is this that the author of Hebrews, most probably Paul, clearly sets down in his epistle. As Moses wrote of Christ, as Jesus said himself in John 5:46, and as he commanded that when Christ came, meaning the prophet of chapter 18, the people were to listen to him. Those who failed to do so would be so judged. As Christ established a new covenant in his blood, he rendered the old, meaning the law of Moses, obsolete. He annulled it and it is now set aside. As you can see then, to reject Christ is to reject Moses. He is the fulfillment of all that Moses taught. However, until that time came, the people were to adhere to the law as laid down right here in Deuteronomy. To fail to do so would bring upon them the curses now being set forth. They did fail, and the curses came upon them exactly as spoken forth by Moses. But their failure to do so also became the lesson for God's people, the tutor, which is intended to lead us to Jesus Christ. The coming verses further explain the content of verse 20, giving examples of how the Lord would accomplish what is said there. That begins with verse 21. The Lord will make the plague cling to you. Yadbek Yehovah Becha et Hadaver. May he cause to cling Yehovah in you the pestilence. Like in verse 8, the first word of the verse is a joseph. It is basically an indirect 
command. Moses is basically commanding the Lord to do this without commanding the Lord, if you get the sense. Moses is thus essentially calling out for the Lord to do this in response to Israel's rebellion. Moses calls for them to be overtaken by Hadavar, or the pestilence. It is a noun, Davar, coming from the word Davar, meaning to speak. It is as if the spoken word of the Lord will cling to them and consume them, as is next noted. Verse 21 continues, until he has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess. Here the word is ground. It's not land. I wish they would get these things and be consistent because it's important the differences you're getting. The word is ground, not land. This is not referring to exile, but to death where Israel lives. The connection seems to be that the word of the Lord is as a destroyer. It drives together what it purposes, and thus when he speaks, the pestilence issues forth when the people are so driven together. As a contagion, it moves quickly from person to person. What this pestilence is cannot be known for sure. The Greek rendering of the verse translates it with the generic word death. As such, it is something terminal once it affects a person. That becomes evident through the word translated as cling, which signifies to stick like glue. It is a horrifying thought that nothing will remove it and no suitable remedy for it will be found. This is what the Lord specifies as one of his four severe judgments in Ezekiel chapter 14. There it says, For thus says the Lord God, How much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence, that word there, to cut off man and beast from it. Jeremiah in particular uses this word time and time again, more than any other prophet, when referring to the judgment of the Lord upon the people. Such a plague is the expected outcome of high crowding, low nutrition, and unsanitary conditions that would normally be expected during the siege of cities within the land. Moses next says, verse 22, the Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with the sword, with scorching, and with mildew. Here Moses lists seven horrifying maladies that would come upon the people. Each is prefixed by an article revealing the specific nature of the calamity. The first is ba shachafet, or in the consumption. This is the second and final time that this word will be used. It comes from the word shachaf, which is a type of gull, like a seagull. As the gull is a thin bird, the picture is clear. Emaciation. The person just wastes away from the disease. The next is ba-kadachat, or in the burning fever. This is also the second and final time that this word will be seen. It is derived from kadach, meaning to kindle. Thus, it is a febrile disease, such as burning og. The fever will simply burn the person up. The next is ba-deliket, or in the inflammation. The word is found only here in the Bible. It comes from the word dalak, meaning to burn or to hotly pursue. It is another burning disease, probably more intense than the first, and may be directed in a different way than the previous, such as the entire body instead of the head. It could be a type of rapidly consuming cancer. The next is ba-harhur, or in the violent burning. This is also found only this once in scripture. It comes from the word harar, to be hot or scorched. Thus, if a burning in the body, it is the most extreme of the three categories. In such a state, the vital organs of the person would simply melt from the heated stress upon the body. However, it could also be referring to the burning of the mind. 
In other words, insanity coming upon a person because of the terrible times that have come upon the people. Thus, it is as if the mind is hotly enraged. Next, Moses uses the word bacherev, or in the sword. The sword is another of the four severe judgments noted by Ezekiel. It is worthy of note that the three letters that spell this word can also be translated as drought, and that is how the Latin Vulgate, the Arabic, and the Samaritan Pentateuch translate this particular verse. As that implies heat, it is a reasonable possibility for what is described here, and it would fit the overall theme of heat as well. Further, it is also something that would be attributed as a plague from the Lord directly rather than indirectly as the sword of an enemy would. However, as this would be the only time that the sword is mentioned in this chapter, and as it is such a common judgment upon Israel throughout the prophets, the word sword may and probably is the correct rendering. The next two words are plagues that target the food of the people. The first is bashidaphon, or in the scorching. This is a new word in scripture, sedefa. It will be seen six times. It comes from shadaf, meaning to scorch or to blight. Ye old King Jimmy version translates this as blasting. I used to read that and I'd say, what is blasting? Well, this is it right here. This probably refers to the scorching east winds that are known to come upon the land. Rather than naming the wind itself, it would then refer to the result of what the wind causes. And this seems likely based on the use of the word in 2 Kings 19. There it says, Therefore, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and grain blighted, that word, before it is grown. Next listed is Bayerakon, or in the mildew. This word is new also, and it will also be seen just six times. All but one time, it will be translated along with the previous word. It signifies mildew, or paleness, coming from yereg, meaning green, greenish, or yellow. One could get the idea of unhealthy sickliness. It is a paleness, whether of people or of plants, that indicates the onset of death. Of these, Moses next says, verse 22 continues, They shall pursue you until you perish. The Lord will send these plagues upon the people coming hard after them so that they will be consumed. It may be that he would send them in rapid succession as well, which would certainly bring madness to the minds of the people as they face the rushing onslaught, and all because they failed to acknowledge the Lord who established them and who blessed them. Verse 23, And your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. Here it should say land rather than earth. It's just the opposite. They keep getting this wrong when they translate this, and it's maddening. It speaks of the state of the entire land given to Israel. It will be under a curse, and it will be unproductive. This is a close repeat of Leviticus 26, verse 19, where it says, I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth, meaning the land, like bronze. Moses here reverses the metals to show that the punishment will be universal in nature. Of these two metals, bronze represents judgment, while iron represents strength, be it in binding together, in government, in hard service, or in bondage. In this, we see judgment in the sky, meaning barren skies with no clouds and no rain, scorching heat radiating down on the people, and so on. This, in turn, will lead to an unyielding earth that is caked and dead. 
Digging through it to find new sources of water would be like digging through rock itself. Times of drought are recorded in the Bible, testifying to judgment upon the people. But this was also the state of the land after the Roman exile. In the destruction of the cities, which included Jerusalem and the sanctuary there, the Romans built siege works. In doing so, they cut down the trees of the land. In this, the natural rain cycles of the land were disrupted. If any rains fell, they were not enough to support crops and produce. This continued on until the return of Israel to the land. In their return, they began planting trees, and the cycle of former and latter rains returned to the land. Mark Twain spoke of the nature of the land as he passed through it, penning a confirmation of the prophecies uttered forth by Moses. And further, the Jameson Fawcett Brown Commentary of 1871 says this, This want of regular and seasonable rain is allowed by the most intelligent observers to be one great cause of the present sterility of Palestine. The Lord spoke directly in Leviticus and through Moses in Deuteronomy about these things. As such, the famines of Israel must be ascribed to the deliberate action of the Lord in fulfillment of his word. In continued reference to the state of the land, Moses speaks on. Verse 24, the Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. With the heavens shut up in judgment and with the ground without any moisture, any loose soil would turn into powder and the dust below the topsoil would be exposed. Everything is in a state of desiccation, and because of that, verse 24 continues, from the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Hebrew says the heavens. It's plural. It is an indication that the sky in all directions would be filled with the powder and dust. This is not specifically speaking of the Sharav or the Hamsin winds that rage over the Middle East even to this day, such as a normal occurrence that simply arises and overwhelms the land from time to time. What Moses refers to here is a consequence of the state of the land. The result of even a normal breeze would be that of constant debris flying about. The desiccated topsoil would be picked up and tossed around, and the dust below it would as well. One would always be covered in a layer of grime as it stuck to the sweat of the body, and there would be no comfort from the grinding of the debris into the skin. A French traveler in the 1600s is cited by Adam Clark. Thevenot, a French traveler who had observed these showers of dusts and so on, says, They grievously annoy all they fall on, filling their eyes, ears, nostrils, and so on. Existence in such a land would be dirty, difficult, and demanding, and it could be avoided if the people would simply pay heed. But the warnings continue to come for those who fail to do so. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. This is the antithesis of verse 7. There it said, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Instead of victory, there will be a total routing of Israel. They will head in every direction, utterly defeated by their enemies. Already in Deuteronomy, the Lord has promised to go out with Israel and to destroy their enemies. This was back in Deuteronomy 20. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This is now explicitly qualified. The Lord will be with Israel if Israel is with the Lord, obeying his commands and observing his statutes. 
To fail means destruction before the foe and more. Verse 25 continues, and you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Here is a rare word, za'avah. It is found only here and in Ezekiel 23, verse 46. It is a transposition of the word zeva'ah, meaning a trembling or an object of terror. The King James Version translates it as shall be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. This is unlikely. The idea of exile is the highest disgrace and the greatest curse to come upon the people. It will be noted later towards the end of the curses. This is now referring to the state of Israel among the nations. They will be defeated in battle, and they will be then treated like a football that gets punted between all of the kingdoms who oppress them. This is actually recorded as occurring during their history prior to exile, where they were subject to paying tribute to Moab, to Assyria, to Egypt, and so on. They're like a football just being kicked around. And more, verse 26, your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. The words are singular, and instead of air, it says the heavens. And it shall be your carcass, Israel, one big carcass, and it shall be your carcass, to food, to every bird in the heavens, and to the beast of the earth. Moses is speaking to Israel in the singular as a united body that will be subject to the prey of the bird and the beast. The use of the singular draws this out in a most notable way. And of these creatures, it says, verse 26 continues, no one shall frighten them away. Being devoured by animals was considered one of the most ignoble ways of all to die. So much so that we read this account at the time of King David when the sons of a woman were put to death before the Lord. Very sad story. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. This woman would not allow the beast to eat her sons because she understood the significance of the curse Moses speaks of now. On the other hand, Israel was promised again by Jeremiah that this fate would befall them as he repeated the same words that Moses uses in this verse. Jeremiah 7 from the Young's literal translation, and the carcass of this people hath been for food to a fowl of the heavens and to a beast of the earth, and there is none troubling. Because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord, the curse of Moses was set to come upon them. Along with this, Moses next says, verse 27, the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with the scab, and with the itch. Moses now speaks of four separate afflictions. The first is the shechin, or boil. It is singular in the Hebrew, thus designating a class of boil, the boil of Egypt. It is an eruption of the skin, it is what Job had all over his body. It's the same word there. And it is what Hezekiah had, but which was cured by applying a poultice of figs. The next is the ophel, or tumor. The word ophel means a mound or a hill. Thus, it is that which mounds up on the body. The King James Version takes it as a specific type of mound using the archaic word emerod, or ouch, hemorrhoid. After that is noted the garav, or scab. This is its third and last use in the Bible. It comes from a root meaning to scratch, as from itching, and so it is a painful affliction of the skin. And finally, there is the chares, or itch. 
This is a new word that will only be seen four times. The other three times it will be translated as son. James Strong thinks that the connection may be that of scraping oneself with a potsherd, which is round, resembling the sun. I would think it is an affliction of the skin, like purigo, that resembles the sun, being bright red or orange and round all over the body. Of these four terrible afflictions, Moses says, verse 27 continues, oh, before I go on, the reason why I think it's probably purigo is because I looked up all of the diseases of Israel as the Jews were moving back into the land, and that was one of them, and it's a, a disease that looks like the sun, so that's why I chose that. Don't want you to think that I didn't want to explain that to you. Okay, verse 27 continues, from which you cannot be healed. When the affliction sets in, it will be because the hand of the Lord sent it. It will occur at a time when the land is devoid of proper medicines due to scarcity, and it will be an affliction that so many people have that it will become endemic in the society. Along with those terrors, verse 28, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart. In addition to the physical just mentioned, comes more afflictions of the body and the mind. The first is shiga'on. It is a new word signifying madness or furiousness. It will be seen in 2 Kings 9, verse 20, where a person drives his chariot in furiousness. Then again in Zechariah 12, where the Lord promises to strike every horse with confusion and every rider with madness during a future battle. Here's where it says this. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with this word, madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the people with blindness. The next word Moses uses is Ivaron. It signifies blindness and it will be seen only one more time. Also, in Zechariah 12, verse 4, again, in that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. That word, Ivaron. This is probably Moses' way of referring to blindness of the mind, thus matching the other two afflictions, which are mental rather than physical torments. The third affliction is Temahon. It is also a new word signifying astonishment or consternation coming from Tama, meaning to be astounded or dumbfounded. In this, it will be levav or to heart. Thus, it signifies a confusion of the mind's ability to reason out what is happening. This word will also be seen only one more time, and it will also be seen only in Zechariah 12, verse 4. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion, that word there, Temahon, and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. One can see that in the great battle, in the end of days, the Lord will take the exact same vengeance against his enemies that Moses now promises will be brought against Israel. The Lord is perfectly fair and just in how he executes his judgments upon or for Israel, depending on how they respond to his word. Finally, we read verse 29, and you shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in the darkness. As the previous verse referred to mental impairment, this follows along with that. The sun at noonday is when everything is the clearest. The shadows are almost non-existent, but just as a blind man gropes in the darkness of his eyes, Israel would grope for clarity and a remedy for the trouble they faced. And yet, no remedy will be found. 
There will only be an inability to rise above the helpless state in which they find themselves. Verse 29 continues, you shall not prosper in your ways. One could think of a country with spiraling debt, hyperinflation, and facing a total economic meltdown like America today. They would grope for an answer to the situation, but no matter what they did, the result was always that things got worse, not better. This is the state that Moses promises Israel will face when they reject the Lord. No matter what way they take, no matter what option they choose, they will only face a worsening of their crisis. In such a state, verse 29 continues, you shall be only oppressed and plundered continuously. Without the ability to correctly evaluate a situation, there is no way to correctly perform in order to alleviate it. Therefore, those who take prey in such a situation will do so to Israel. It is reflective of the words of Judges chapter 6. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Until Israel's hemmed in and plundered enough, they would keep their necks stiff and their hearts unyielding. But when things would get bad enough, they would cry out to the Lord for deliverance. This is the way it has been, and this is the way it will continue to be until they come to him, Moses warns. Verse 29 finishes with, and no one shall save you. The Hebrew reads, ve'ain movoshiah, and no savior for you. Apart from the Lord, Israel has no savior. Moses promises them that if they depart from him, salvation will not be found. Only in seeking him out will deliverance be possible. But this is the lesson that permeates scripture concerning all humanity. Adam rejected the word of the Lord. In this, woe and affliction came upon him. That has continued unabated in human history. Israel was given as a lesson for humanity, and that lesson is ongoing today. Their rejection of Christ has brought people from all over the world to the place where salvation is found. Until Israel wises up and seeks the Lord they once crucified, their troubles will continue unabated. The fact that they are back in the land and seemingly doing okay does not in any way mean that things are okay for them. They are being brought to the point where they will, as a nation, face the possibility of utter destruction. And that is written in their own scriptures. That would not happen if they were right with the Lord, and so the curse for them is ongoing. Until they acknowledge what they have done, and until they make it right by calling out to Christ for deliverance, they will not prosper as a people. In seeing this and in understanding it, this should clue each and every one of us into it all the more to the fact that we each, just as Israel as a nation, need Jesus. If the blessings and the curses toward Israel are true, and if Jesus Christ is the focus of them coming, and because Jesus has been presented to the world as its one and only Messiah, then we must pay heed. This is the story of Israel. It is a story for each of us to learn from. 
And so may you learn it today to the glory of the Lord, who is the giver of every good blessing or the finality of man through the curse. I feel so bad when I read these verses. I feel so bad. I've got something to say, and I think it's the final Deuteronomy 28 sermon, which will be another five away of how it affected me when I was in Israel. And I'll tell you about that when we get there. But I feel so bad reading these verses because everything is written in advance. It's not like it was a surprise. Not at all like it was a surprise. Everything is there that has happened to them and that will happen to them. Moses told them. Zechariah tells them. Malachi tells them. Everything is all laid out for them. And yet they are going to face more troubles because they have not paid heed. But as I said just a second ago in these last two paragraphs, the exact same thing is true with us. The book is written. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, is there. And the last couple chapters of Revelation tell us the end of all humanity. It's one or the other, and there is no other option that is given. So we can't say that we didn't know. We can't say that we weren't warned. And this is why we get missionaries out to the world to tell people about what's coming. You have a choice to make. You have to get out there and you have to make a choice. God is not going to do it for you. I'm sorry. Reformed theology is wrong. Calvinism is wrong. He does not make the choice for you. He offers you. He gives you his word. He says, this is what I offer in the giving of my son. And if it's rejected, this is where you're going to go. You're already heading there. I'm giving you grace by giving you Jesus. Because every person that has ever been born is on the way to the wrong place. Jesus is the one that gets us out of that. It's grace. God's grace. Please listen to the lesson because the book is written the last word is there amen so be it pay heed the gospel is very simple jesus christ died for your sins implying you're a sinner jesus christ was buried meaning he was really dead and then jesus christ rose again meaning he was victorious over the grave and in that it proves that he was a sinless human being because if he wasn't he would not have come out of the grave and so he was not only a sinless being, he is the sinless human being. And because of that, he can offer you his perfection by simply believing in what he has done. He will leave your sins behind. He'll cast them as far as the east is from the west. If you've ever been in an airplane and you are flying north and south, you'll see the, the compasses like this, right? Well, if you, I've never done it, but if you get to the North Pole, what's going to happen when you go over the North Pole? It's going to spin around because there's a north and there's a south. But if you get in your airplane and you start flying from the east to the west, you're going to come right back to where you were and that compass will never have changed because there's no end to the east and the west. And that's why Isaiah prophesied all those thousands of years ago about casting your sins as far as the east is from the west. We think north and south. Oh, he's going to cast them as far. That would be an error in thinking because there is a north and there is a south. Jesus Christ will forgive you infinitely. If you simply come to him, please do it today. Our closing verse comes from Acts chapter four. It's verses 11 and 12. Ooh, I get to do that in another three or four months. I'll be to that verse. I did, ooh, guess what verse I typed today? What a great verse in the Bible to keep people from bad doctrine. It's not gonna help you with good doctrine, but it'll keep you from bad doctrine. Acts 2.38. Let me read it to you before we go on. This is a great, great verse. To, if you get this wrong, you are going to be all over the place. There are about 50,000 different heresies that can come from this one verse. But if you get it right, you avoid all of them. Here's what it says in Acts 2.38. It'll be out in 12 days. You can wait. 
Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You talk about bad doctrine in the church, that verse right there. Jim, what are the five basic principles for proper interpretation of the Bible? Prescriptive. Descriptive. If you apply those five to that verse, you will avoid error in Calvinism, in Pentecostalism, in the Church of Christ, in Hebrew roots. I'm telling you, it will take care of so many errors in thinking if you apply those five rules, especially the third, fourth, and fifth ones, context, 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 you will have avoided many, many pitfalls. And you'll know when you go to a church whether you should get up and walk out or not, that one verse. Okay, I got a closing verse for you here. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I'm telling you, if the Bible isn't true, it doesn't matter. But if it is, it matters a lot. Next week is Deuteronomy 28, 30 through 37. When they open their purses, they will be empty. It's entitled, The Blessings and the Curses. Part 3. That'll be our 79th Deuteronomy sermon. Thank you, Jay. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. Oh, Jay, we need to keep him in prayer. He had a little bit of AFib this week. We want to make sure that we keep him in prayer. They think they've got it all figured out, and he just needs to lay low and take it easy, but keep him in prayer. Oh, and guess what? Before we go on, it's Joan's birthday today. If you didn't know that, make sure you wish her a happy birthday, okay? Happy birthday, Joan. All right. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, I got a poem. It's entitled, The Blessings and the Curses, Part 2. But before we have our poem, this is going to be an easy one. I'd say that, and this time it really is. This is something that some friends brought. They're sitting back there, and they don't want to be identified, but this is something they, they brought for us. These are ceramic coasters, and they're dogs. This one has got Frankie's hot dogs and it's got a wiener dog right here with a wiener in his hand and he's serving it to you. Okay. So, and then we'll get back into the cars. You got the airplane last week. We've got three cars and those came from Seth out in Kansas. And I don't think I said that last week. He sent those to us. And so here we go. This is from them in the back. Okay. We saw that being eaten by the beasts of the field was an ignoble way to go. Name someone who became such a banquet. Oh, who said that? You did. Jezebel. Very good. Great stuff. Okay. It's a great passage. I won't take the time to read it to you now, but she, she, her uh, husband is dead. Her son just got killed. She needs to ally herself with the enemy now. If she doesn't, she's a goner. So she paints her face, puts on her makeup. She looks out the window and she says, you murderer of your master trying to get his affection. And he says, who's on my side? And a couple people look out the window and he says, Chuck her out the window. And then down she goes, splatters, dogs eat her up. Good job. Here. Hot dog for you. Okay. Yeah, hot dogs. Very good. Good. Okay, here we go. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, pay heed, my words are true. 
to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you in the country be. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks as well. Please understand. Cursed shall you be when you come in without a doubt, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do, so shall it be, until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the plague cling to you, so to you I address, until he has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever too, with the sword, with scorching, and with the mildew, and they shall pursue you until you perish, even you. And your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron, such a state will be employed." The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them, hightailing it off to Perth, and flee seven ways before them, and you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air, so to you I say, and the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt. That plague will be unsealed with tumors, with the scab, and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness, and that is just the start, and blindness and confusion of heart. And you shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. This much is true. You shall be only oppressed and plundered continually, and no one shall save you. Lord God, Turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the lesson of your word that details things in advance so that we can avoid the errors that are also prophesied to come in the future. Thank you for the avenue of grace that leads to the foot of the cross, something undeserved by humanity, and yet you did it anyways. You came in among humanity and you did what we could otherwise not even conceive, the mystery that is unveiled for us to behold as Christ hung on the cross and bled to death for our sins. Thank you, O God, for what you have done in Jesus Christ our Lord. And hallelujah that he came out of the grave, taking away our guilt, atoning for our sins, and giving us life everlasting in your glorious presence. Thank you for the surety we possess because of that wonderful act. Thank you for Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.